You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Hi, EBA family. The scripture today comes from Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, EBF. My name is Tim Allen, and I have the humble privilege of serving here as lead pastor. And one of the great privileges we have among my fellow elders is to shepherd the flock that God has entrusted to our care. And sometimes what that means is drawing near and listening to people, uh, listening when people have experienced great pain, great loss. And we recognize that this has been a season of great pain for our church. Even as we have reflected on the multi-ethnic people of God in Ephesians chapter 3, we are reminded of the heartache that has come about as a result of our church pursuing or becoming a flourishing multi-ethnic church. And so we wanted to extend the invitation to anyone that would desire to sit down with us as elders. It could be just myself or me and one other elder or all of us. And it could be if you want to come with you or perhaps your spouse, or if you want to come with a group of people or your ethos community, kind of leaving it open. But we would long to engage in these listening sessions, to hear your heart, to hear perhaps the ways in which you have experienced pain along the way by what has been said or perhaps by what has been left unsaid. And so you can reach out to us at elders at ebfchurch.org, and we would, we would love to be able to connect with you in that way. And this is especially important, I think, for us as elders as we prepare to go on a retreat together. Now, it's not the, ty- the type of retreat we would perhaps like to do in this time, but we desire to do, do these listening sessions to have that inform our time together as we pursue God's heart together and what is next for our church. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Help us now, O Lord, to hear and obey what you have to say to us today through your holy and inspired word. May we hear your life-giving gospel. May we hear it with, with fresh ears and hold unswervingly to it and to share it with conviction and compassion. Through Christ, our risen Lord. Amen.
Amen. During the summer of 2019, Danielle and I had the privilege of celebrating our 10th anniversary, and we got to do that by going on a Western Mediterranean cruise. I have to admit the thought of cruising right now just seems so completely foreign, but we're glad we were able to do it when we were. Uh, but during one of our stops along the way, we got to explore the Leaning Tower of Pisa. I guess it was a little anticlimactic since we'd already seen the Leaning Tower of Niles, but uh, just kidding. It was amazing. And we waited our turn and began our ascent up those spiral, slightly unnerving uh, stairs up to the very top where we got to just take in the whole area, just the incredible views over the city. And in many ways, what Paul does here in his prayer in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21, is like a spiral staircase. Rather than approaching prayer like a laundry list, he grounds his prayer in the very character and action of God. He then appeals to God with requests that build upon and recapitulate one another and ends in the heavens, ends in a note of praise and honor and glorifying his great God and King. And so in our time together this morning, we're going to explore this spiral staircase of Paul's magnificent, multidimensional prayer in the address that we see in verses 14 to 15, the appeals in verses 16 to 19, and then the adoration in verses 20 through 21. So let's begin with the address there in verses 14 to 15. In the address, we find the inspiration for his prayer, the posture of his prayer, and the one to whom Paul prayed. The inspiration of his prayer is signaled by that phrase, for this reason. And that might seem familiar to us because it's the same phrase that Paul uses at the beginning of Ephesians 3, verse 1, before he then interrupts himself to explore the mystery of the gospel and the ministry of the gospel. As we saw last week in Ephesians 3, 7 through 13, the ministry of the gospel involves being overwhelmed by the sheer grace of God, by proclaiming the unfathomable riches of Christ, by maintaining a high view of Christ's church, by drawing near to God with confidence, and being willing to suffer for Christ and to be willing to suffer on behalf of others. And so for this reason, here points back to Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. Paul reflects on every spiritual blessing in chapter 1, verse 3. Every spiritual blessing that is ours in Christ Jesus. The wonders of God's eternal plan to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. And he embraces the cross where Christ's blood-bought double reconciliation was secured our vertical reconciliation with God, and our horizontal reconciliation with one another. And in what comes immediately here before chapter 3, Paul points back to and revels in the one new people of God that are united in Christ's death, who are fellow citizens in God's kingdom, and who are full members of God's family living stones in God's temple, that temple that is being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason. These high and holy realities move Paul to pray, and they should move us to pray as well. 
God moved heaven and earth to rescue us, lavished us with his extravagant grace, forged our new identity in Christ, sealed us with his life-giving spirit, bonded us with our fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow participants in the church. And that's just the beginning. Remembering where we came from, who we are now, and the great lengths God went to save us should cause our hearts to overflow with gratitude and should drive us to our very knees in thankful prayer. The posture of his prayer then is that of complete reverence and awe, falling to his knees before his father. You know, it was not customary usually for Jews to pray kneeling. The more common posture that we see of prayer in scripture especially, is that of standing, often with arms outstretched. But in extraordinary times of acclamation and of desperation in scripture, we do see kneeling in reverential prayer. We do see examples of that. For example, King Solomon knelt at the dedication of the temple. Daniel knelt in prayer following the edict that was issued that prayer could not be lifted up to anyone other than King Darius. Jesus himself fell to the ground and agonized in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Stephen fell to his knees in desperation as he was being stoned and prayed. In that moment, he prayed for his persecutors. Even Paul, at the end of his time, with the elders of the Ephesian church, knelt down and prayed with them one final time before heading to Jerusalem. Kneeling signifies surrender. It is a sign of homage before the one true God and King, before whom every knee will bow. Isaiah 45 verse 23 says, By myself I have sworn... From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. John 15 verse 5 reminds us that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And this should humble us and fill us with desperation as we truly, as we approach the one true God, the only one who is powerful to act on our behalf. This should not only remind us of our helplessness without him, but should cause us to kneel before him in reverence and awe. The one to whom Paul prayed was his heavenly father. But he extraordinarily adds the phrase here, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. What an amazing statement. Remember, Paul has stressed that God is the creator of all things, that he is the master craftsman who formed and fashioned humankind, his masterpiece in his image. There is a wordplay that takes place here between the word father, pater, and family, patria. And biblically speaking, to name someone is to define their identity. So here Paul addresses God the Father who names or defines the identity of every group, every group of angelic beings in heaven and every group of human beings on earth. God the Father is the creator of all people. All humanity is linked by their creator and it is from him that all families come. This speaks to his authority and his rule over all. 
Lynn Kohick, in writing on this, I thought just encapsulated this very well. She writes this, Paul emphasizes that God is the God of all nations, all peoples, all tribes and languages, both in the past, now, and until Christ returns. Paul draws this conclusion not only from Israel's prophets, such as Isaiah, but also from the reality that in Christ, Jew and Gentile are made one new people, reconciled to God by Christ's cross. Paul's claim that God the Father is the God of all ethnic and language groups was not a dominant view at the time. For most people believed that gods ruled over territories, and those born in those territories were under the care of and were responsible to that deity. Not only is God the God of all nations, but in a much deeper sense, God can be known and experienced as our Father through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through Christ, just think about how this is traced through Ephesians. Through Christ, we are adopted into God's family. We come to know the Father of glory. We have access to the Father's very presence. We are made heirs together and can boldly approach Him with confidence. God the Father, as the creator of all people, should raise the value that we place on our fellow human beings. Every person is made in God's image, has inherent dignity and worth, and should be treated as such. This should also inspire us in our gospel ministry to call all people to come home, to come home to their true Father. Klein Snodgrass writes on this whole notion of God being the Father of every family. He writes that God is the Father from whom every family is named means partly that we all have the same origin and value. We belong to a larger human family, all members of which, as the first part of their definition, owe their allegiance to God. We all belong to each other. The built-in arrogance of every race, nationality, and clan has no ultimate basis. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, racism was obliterated through the work of Christ. In Ephesians 3, 14 through 15, we are shown that racism never had any basis in the first place. Another takeaway for us to consider here is that in, when thinking about fatherhood, some of us have had good earthly examples, while many of us have had terrible examples and a trail a wake of devastation in our families. Dear church, God is the one in whom perfect fatherhood is seen. As Paul reminds us in Romans 8, by God's spirit, we can cry out to him, Abba, Father. Abba is like saying, Daddy. Through Christ, we can have boldness. We can have confidence to come to him, to be real with him, and to express the longing and desires of our heart because he perfectly loves he perfectly cares, he perfectly hears, and he perfectly acts for our good and his glory. So following the cause and the posture of his prayer, and then the Father to whom he prays, Paul now launches into the appeals in verses 16 through 19. And in the appeals here, Paul climbs the spiral staircase with four requests, four requests for his fellow believers. Paul's first appeal is for strength, that the Ephesians would be strengthened with power through the Spirit. Look at verses 16 and 17 in particular. That according to the riches of his glory, 
he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul grounds this appeal in the riches of his glory, much like the unsearchable riches of Christ in chapter 3, verse 8. The source or fountainhead of power that the Ephesians need is the inexhaustible riches of God's glory. So Paul prays that God would grant strength with power through his spirit in their inner being. This is an especially important prayer in the face of the discouragement that they had or the losing heart, as Paul puts it, over his own suffering, his own imprisonment. In scripture, power and spirit are so intertwined that they are practically synonymous. The spirit is the power of God made manifest. Paul prays that the spirit would be at the controls in the center of our being. This power is not a visible or obvious strength to be paraded around before others, but an inner conviction of the heart brought about by the spirit's internal working. And what's more, Paul prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. At first glance here, this might seem strange since he has already spoken of the Spirit sealing us and taking up residence the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We see that in chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. But the word for dwell here is, is really interesting. The word for dwell doesn't just mean to arrive. It means to, to settle down. Paul is praying that the Spirit of Christ would make himself at home in their hearts and continue his transforming work in their lives, making them more like him. This transforming presence is experienced through faith. Through faith. You know, in reflecting on this, D.A. Carson, who uh, was one of my, actually one of the professors I got to have at Trinity back in the day, but... He provides a really helpful analogy that really captured my imagination, that of a couple who purchases a home that needs a lot of work. And admittedly, as Danielle and I have been in our own house search here, we have encountered a few of those types of homes that need a lot of work. But here's what he wrote. When Christ, by his spirit, takes up residence within us, he finds a moral equivalent to trash, black and silver wallpaper, and a leaking roof. He sets about turning this residence into a place appropriate for him, a home for which he is comfortable. When a person takes up long-term residence somewhere, their presence eventually characterizes that dwelling. When Christ first moves into our lives, he finds us in bad repair. It takes a great deal of power to change us. And that is why Paul prays for power. He is transforming us into a house that pervasively reflects his own character. Dear church, it is, it is vital that we, not only that we tap into the true source of power, but also that we tend to our inner being. We must have the controlling presence of, of our lives be in Christ. He must have, he must be at the controls of our thoughts, our words, and our actions, our attitudes, our habits. He must be at the center of our, of our affections and our decisions as we continually trust in him. And like a newly married couple learning to make decisions together, we must gain a deeper awareness of his ways through his word. Pray for wisdom to apply his word in our everyday lives and decisions. Also like newly married couples, 
replacing their own interests and activities with what we might call combined pursuits. The spirit dwelling within us gradually kills off selfishness and replaces it with service so that Christ feels more and more at home in our lives. I don't know about you, but when I look at my own life, I recognize that there is so much still that needs to be done. There is a great deal of renovation needed. But the truth is that even when we stumble and fall, Christ will never walk out on us. Paul's second appeal is that of love, that they would be rooted and grounded in love. We see this at the end of verse 17 when he writes this, that you being rooted and grounded in love. In highlighting the foundational nature of love, Paul uses two metaphors here. He's in the habit of doing that, but one is agricultural, that of being rooted, and the other is architectural, that of being grounded or established. Being rooted speaks to something being firmly anchored in the ground, and being established speaks to having a strong and solid foundation. Together, they provide a, a vivid illustration of the solidness and, and being securely fixed in God's love. I love the way that, that John Stott puts it here. He writes, love is to be the soil in which their life is to be rooted. Love is to be the foundation on which their life is built. Paul expresses a similar thought in Colossians 2 verses 6 through 7. And he says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Donald Barnhouse once, once pointed out that love is at the core of the very fruit of the Spirit. It's at the beginning of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, but it is so deeply intertwined with each aspect of the Spirit. He writes, he highlights this by saying, love is the key. Joy is love singing. Peace is love resting. Long-suffering is love enduring. Kindness is, kindness is love's touch. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. Gentleness is love's self forgetfulness. Self-control is love holding the reins. There are no fruit of the Spirit. There are no fruits of the Spirit without love. So we must be rooted and grounded in love. Like well-rooted trees, our lives should send down deep roots and roots that go deep and wide into the soil of Christ's love. Also, like well-built houses, our lives should be built upon the solid foundation of Christ's love. May love keep us steadfast and immovable, and may it be reflected in every dimension of our lives. So from strength to love, Paul's third appeal, this next step in his spiral staircase is that of knowledge. That they would know the love of Christ in all its dimensions. Look particularly at verses 18 to 19. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What an amazing paradoxical prayer. To know the unknowable 
to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul clearly has experienced and is overwhelmed by Christ's love. It is a love that can only be comprehended by God's strength. And it is a love that is pursued by all the saints, all of God's holy people, past, present, and future. It is a multi-dimensional love. Paul highlights the width and length and height and depth of God's always and forever love. Christ's love is so wide that it envelops the whole world. It is so long that it has no limits in its eternality. It is so high that nothing else can surpass it. And it is so deep that it can reach down into the belly of the beast and rescue fallen human beings. Oh, that we would truly understand and experience the vastness, the the vast dimensions of Christ's boundless love for us. For this is the gospel on full display. Christ's love is wide enough to embrace people of any ethnic background, as we have seen in in the inclusion of Jews and Gentiles here in in Ephesians 2 and 3 in particular. John 3.16 reminds us, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Christ's love is long enough to last for all eternity. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13.8, Love never ends. Charles Spurgeon once put it this way, he said, It is so long that your old age cannot wear it out. So long your continual tribulation cannot exhaust it. Your successive temptations shall not drain it dry. Like eternity itself, it knows no bounds. Christ's love is wide enough. Christ's love is long enough. And Christ's love is high enough. It lifts sinners to the heavens. It seats us together with Christ in the heavenly places. 1 John 3 verses 1 through 2 reminds us, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children. We are God's children. Now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is. Christ's love is indeed high enough and it is also deep enough. It is deep enough to plunge into the depths and rescue the vilest of sinners. Philippians 2, 8 gives us this picture of the depths to which Jesus descended himself. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The church fathers, too, saw the dimensions of Christ's boundless love illustrated in the very cross itself. The vertical pole plunges down into the earth. It plunges down into the muck and the mire. And it points up into the heavens. It points up, bridging the chasm between us and God. The horizontal beam carries the outstretched arms of our Savior beckoning us to come, to behold, and to believe. Paul's fourth appeal here, then, in what is the apex of these requests, is for fullness. That they would be filled with the fullness of God. We see that at the end of verse 19. 
This is the climax of Paul's requests for his fellow believers. Paul has prayed along the lines of God's attributes, for God's gift, his strength, knowledge, and love. But now he reaches into the heavens and he prays the loftiest prayer of all for the full presence, the indwelling, and the fullness of God himself. In the Old Testament, the temple was filled with the presence and glory of the Lord. Now Paul prays that God would fill all of the saints to overflowing with the full measure of himself. You know, we might typically think of the Holy Spirit being the one who fills, and that is true. But this indwelling and this fullness is ascribed to all three persons of the Trinity in the book of Ephesians. Paul's prayer is very much Trinitarian in shape. I hope that you noticed that as we went along. The triune God of holy love is on full display. And so may this be at the apex of our prayer for people, that they too would be filled with all the fullness of God. And so after Paul's appeals for strength, love, knowledge, and fullness, he ends on a lofty and striking note of praise in the adoration in verses 20 through 21. In these verses, Paul provides what we might call the what, the how, and the why of joyful praise that is based upon the majesty of God. He gives us an invitation to thankful worship that is a fitting conclusion to the first half of Ephesians and then points forward to where we will go in Ephesians chapters 4 through 6 as we learn what it means to live in light of what God has done in our lives. He ends on the same note of doxology where he began in chapter 1. And so first of all, what is God able to do? Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Did you notice, watch, even in going through a verse like that, he piles up these phrases to convey God's power. God is able, yes, God is able to do far more. But not just that, God is able to do far more abundantly. But not just that, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask. And not just that, he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. God is able to do more in response to one prayer than we could do in a hundred years of strategizing and planning and implementing that strategy. It is impossible to ask God for too much. His ability to give far exceeds our ability to ask or even imagine. And it is comforting knowing just embedded in this verse is the reality that this is a God, we have a God who acts. He does not sit idly by. He is not uninterested in what happens in the lives of human beings. He did not just spin the world into existence and then take a step back. No, he cares. He hears and answers prayer. He knows our thoughts and his ways are higher than ours. He alone has the power to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. How is this possible? Look at the rest of verse 20. According to the power at work within us. Here is yet another reminder that, that we are to be completely dependent upon God's power and strength. Think of how God used key figures in the Bible. Figure, figures like Moses, Gideon, David, Elijah. God is able to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. 
not because of what we muster up on our own, but because of his power at work in us. So why does God do these things? Why does he do this? Verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The purpose of God's love and plan is to bring honor and glory to God. And what's surprising here is Paul's inclusion of the church alongside Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? When he writes, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. This is the only doxology in the New Testament where this occurs. But it makes sense in light of what Paul has been teaching us along the way about the church. The church is the body of Christ. The display of the grace of God. The church is the reconciled people of God, the highest citizenship possible, the household of God, the holy temple in the Lord, and the beacon, the very beacon of the multifaceted wisdom of God into the heavenlies. But the body of Christ has a head. So Paul adds, in Christ Jesus, to God be the glory in the body and in the head. To God be the glory in the saints and in the Holy One. To God be the glory in the reconciled and in the reconciler. To God be the glory in the living stones and in the cornerstone. To God be the glory in the bride and in the bridegroom. May God's glory extend through all generations, past, present, and future. And may God's glory be forever and ever. O oh, church, let us humbly pray to the Father for strength through His Spirit, the love and knowledge of Christ, and the fullness of God, so that our wonder-working God is glorified for all eternity. Psalm 106 verse 48 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, our Father, we acknowledge that we and every other person has our origin in you. We owe you our very lives. Forgive us for the arrogance of thinking we are better or more important than other people. Let your spirit work in us to strengthen us. We want your spirit to merge with ours. Make the presence of Christ so real that we sense your love and live out of your love. Help us understand how deep your love is so that it changes us into your very image. You who are all-powerful beyond anything we can conceive, we praise you. Every accolade of worth we throw at your feet. You alone are God. From your worth, all other worth is determined. For the gift of life in Christ, we and all your people worship you, O Lord. Together and forever, we will sing your praise. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.